Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome back, yes, back, to Cage Rage Revisited, episode two. This is the uh, recall, reboot, continuation, ongoing miniseries in which I am going back to some of Nicolas Cage's earlier films that I covered in the podcast, a few films that I don't feel I did quite as much justice to as I would have liked, and this time bringing on board some fantastic guests to uh, recover and reanalyse and re-dig into those early works of the Golden Hog of Hollywood. Well, welcome back. Thank you for coming back to Cage Rage Revisited. We previously recovered Vampire's Kiss, from the 80s, and we're sticking in that time period to go to one film prior, 1987's Moonstruck, starring Nicolas Cage and Cher. Uh, This was one that the first time round watching this film, it didn't quite click with me. I wasn't... um, I was hoping that I'd be more into the film than what I was, but ultimately I wasn't. And that's okay, because opinions are things... But this time around, I am now joined by a senior editor and regular co-host on the Letterboxd podcast, Mitchell Beaupre. They were very kind enough to give up their time to talk about this uh, 1987 Cage classic. And we're going to get into uh, all the nitty gritties up there. We're talking about uh, Cher's transformation, Nicolas Cage's wooden hand. We're talking about all the smaller characters, the moon and those two wolves inside us and how they just be sucking and fucking. It'll all make sense in the podcast, probably. Uh, But I hope you enjoy it. There's a lovely episode coming up. And as ever, if you enjoy the episode, if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to uh, drop us a rating on all the usual podcast formats, your Spotify's, your Apple's, your Podchasers. Uh, Drop a little star rating down there, a little five star. You know what to do. Helps the show grow and helps us get out to more people. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at cage underscore podcast i'm on instagram at cage rage pod and i'm on tiktok as well at cage rage pod find me on all the usual uh, channels and the social medias and streaming services and uh, get in touch we're lovely to hear from you but with that said without further ado let's jump back into it it's cage rage revisited episode two daryl edge mitchell beaupre it's moonstruck enjoy duh It's the second episode of Cage Rage Revisited, and this week we return to 1987 Brooklyn with the romantic comedy Moonstruck. Here, Cage plays Ronnie Camareri, a hot-tempered, one-handed baker who falls in love with his estranged brother's fiance. Joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if this movie has Moonstruck gold or Moonstruck out is senior editor and podcast host for Letterboxd, Mitchell Beaupre. Mitchell, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. How the devil are you doing? Doing great, doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I like how how the devil are you doing because I was just thinking, I was wondering like 
thinking what Cage has coming out this year, and obviously Renfield is like out the week that we're recording this, and then I was remembering that he has 750 for the Devil as well coming out this summer. So very fitting, very fitting intro into it. <laughs> this this is the thing now. Three years into this podcast, it's affected me in the most subliminal ways. <laughs> um, my relationships are ruined. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm more Cage podcast than uh, than human being <laughs> at this point. Um, but with sort of cage introductions aside, um, and with new guests on the podcast as well, I'm always very keen to know, um, for yourself, Mitchell, Nicholas Cage, um, rate him, hate him, tolerate him. Where do you stand on the man that I refer to as the golden hog of Hollywood? (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, I've gone through a journey with Cage over the years where when I was like getting into film, it was at the period where he was like memefied to the max. And like, I think I was having that sort of like ironic appreciation of Cage where I was a little bit like watching The Wicker Man, like laughing at it more than like with it. And it took me a little while to get to that place of appreciating like this guy is doing something that nobody else is doing, even in the stuff where it seems a little, you know, over the top, a little like maximalist, that's all intentional. That's all him pulling from like resources that other actors of his generation are not pulling from that we're not seeing. Like you almost like meme cage because he's so unique and, but it's all him committing fully to doing what he's doing. And I think it took me a little while to get to the place of appreciating what he's doing on a more like genuine level beyond the like irony of it. And now mm. I think he's one of my like all time favorite actors, especially going through his entire filmography at a certain point and seeing the journey from, you know, the Valley girls and the vampires kiss to the nineties action movies with also like leaving Las Vegas in there. And then what he's doing these days where you have like a bad Lieutenant followed by, you know, a decade later pig and stuff like that. Like it's such a broad range of things that he's doing and he taps into everything so well. And there really is not any, as you know, you well know, there's not anybody like Nicolas Cage. And I know it well. I, <laughs> I know it very well. But also, correct answer, Mitchell, correct answer. Um, I think like hearing you sort of like recount your sort of Cage experience as well, sort of quite similar to my own, I think... I don't even know if this is a generational thing, but certainly for me, it was, I think, to begin very much an ironic appreciation mm-hmm. for him to start. Um, and then there became a point where I became the Cage guy in the friendship circles. <laughs> I was like, like, we all saw Nicolas Cage losing his shit in that YouTube video. And yeah, even though it's one of the most out-of-context videos of all time, and I, <laughs> and I can now watch that video and say, I know where that's from, I know where that's mm-hmm. from, I know where that's from. Um, my appreciation from sort of like grew sort of slowly as well to the point I was like, there's there's, there's more to this guy than like the the over the top and as you said the maximalism and like the screaming and stuff. Um, and I think as well recently I sort of revisited Gam- Vampire's Kiss one you brought up there to the point where now I watch that movie and I'm like actually actually like guys guys just listen just hear me out this is actually pretty good 
I think Vampire's Kiss is like I think the the perfect example where if I had seen that movie 15 years ago, I would have like given it like an F, like I would have given it you know half a star on Letterboxd or whatever. And I watched it for the first time last year. That was the first time I had seen it, and I gave it five stars. Like I think it is one. It's one of my favorite films. I think it's probably my favorite Cage performance. And in a totally not ironic way at all, like in a total like a pre- like genuine appreciation for what he's bringing mm-hmm. and the level of commitment and the fact that he's pulling from German expressionism for a movie that nobody else would have made that choice to go that deep into what he's doing there and like really yeah. playing it like a dude who genuinely believes that he's like becoming a vampire, but in a sense of like, like his interpretation of becoming a vampire is not that he's actually becoming a vampire. It's that he thinks he is. So he's pulling from seeing movies like Nosferatu and everything. And like what somebody thinking that he's becoming a vampire and like taking on all of the like surface level kind of ticks and personas of what a vampire is like that's a performance that is going so many layers deeper than you would think or even you know initially perceive it as going yeah yeah exactly i think um i think there are some films out there and you know nicholas cage's filmography has one or two where you kind of have to get the first viewing out of the way yeah. <laughs> um, I think Vampire's Kiss is very much one of them. The Wicker Man, Deadfall, if you've caught Deadfall <laughs> sure, as well. Yeah, yeah. That is a movie I've seen more times than I care to admit. Um, but some of them, like you, once you look past uh, the memification of them all, and exactly as you've been touching on, you see what it is he's actually doing. Um, and it's something I've been banging the drummer for the longest time in this podcast now, like whether you sort of enjoyed the film or you didn't, you'll be hard pressed not to come away from the majority of his movies and not thinking about his performances mm, as mm-hmm. well. Um, and it, this was sort of certainly one for me with uh, Moonstruck as well, which is an interesting one that I've wanted to revisit for the longest time because when you speak to people about Nicolas Cage and you say, oh, what is the best Cage movies? What are your top 10, top fives? So often, Moonstruck is in that conversation for a lot of people, and I will hold my hands up and say the first time I watched it, roughly about three years ago at the time of recording, it didn't quite click for me, Um, and this is one of those things, um, and and I don't know if you've ever had this with certain movies, where you you watch a film and you realise that, that's why it's the best way to put it, like, you come away and think, am I wrong? Mm. Is my opinion on this wrong? <laughs> <laughs> because the only the only film I will not retract my opinion on is Avatar. Avatar can go to hell, um, <laughs> which I, I realize is a big, big claim to make. No, you're uh, you're in good company with that. I I yes! tried to revisit Avatar um, like a few years back. I like went through a lot of James Cameron's movies and like revisited. Uh, all of them and was like okay I like I like what he's doing like I'm clearly I'm gonna like Avatar more this time because I did not like it at all when it came out and I hadn't seen it since then and I'm like well this time like after watching all of his movies appreciating even Titanic like a movie that I didn't really love but really liked the the last time I rewatched it I'm like okay well now I'm gonna turn around on Avatar and I watched Avatar again and like an hour into it I'm like no this is still dog shit like I can't stand (laughs) this movie Yes, you heard it here first. <laughs> I have letterboxed backing people. Yes, um, but no, like I say, like I came away from it I was like I didn't hate it. Don't get me wrong, but I was like, I just have to. I just feel like it didn't quite click for me. And again, I'm not the biggest rom com guy in the world. It's not not my go to. 
Um, but for the golden hog of Hollywood, I will watch any and have watched <laughs> any any genre. Um, for you, do you sort of recall the first time you sort of uh, came into the sphere of Moonstruck? Was that on sort of part of your sort of cage, your own sort of cage journey as well? Yeah, I, I had a similar experience where I watched it for the first time. It was probably like 15 or so years ago. And it was like, I think not for cage reasons, but more like I was going through a lot of like the Oscar nominees and winners and whatever, as you do. And like seeing a lot of love for this one, the fact that Cher and Olympia Dukakis both won, it got a ton of other nominations and everything. And so I was going into it with like, the the pedestal of this being a huge like it won a ton of awards kind of movie and mm -hmm. i i watched it and i thought it was like you yeah, i thought it was fine like i i didn't i didn't think it was bad by any means but i thought it was just a very like conventional straight down the line uh like romantic movie and never really thought about it again until um i can't remember it was like a couple a couple years ago um my partner and i were my partner was discovering their own love of cage and their appreciation mm -hmm. of cage and so we were going a dive through like a lot of cage movies because they hadn't really seen too much of anything i think we watched like wild at heart and they just really loved what he was doing in that and wanted to see like more and more so like i introduced him to like face off and you know some of the really big ones and then we went to watch moonstruck and within the first like half hour or honestly before that probably within the first like 10 minutes i mm -hmm. was really overwhelmed by how beautiful i found it and how like touching i found it and i think it was that rewatch like like in a weird way having to get in its own unique way having to get that first viewing of it out of the way where like i'm going and thinking it's going to be this you know specific thing that's going to blow my mm -hmm. mind and it's more it's not that grandiose and so I was a little bit disappointed by it. But the fact that it's not grandiose is a big part of the appeal and why I think it's so tremendous because it is very like sincere and very like played in the reality of these characters while having that like a very magical, almost like fairy tale kind of esque quality to it, but also capturing a lot of the the darker dimensions and just like the multidimensionality of relationships. So that second viewing, I was, I was really blown away by it in a way that I was expecting to the first time, but in a totally different way than I was expecting, I suppose. Yeah. Like I, it's like a, a, a real big, like agree on that. Cause I think again, it's maybe it speaks to the danger of, of, of falling into the, the hype machine, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it's what it's there to do. Um, and I've always tried to go into the majority of Cage movies for this podcast anyway, with like as little pre-information as possible. Mm. Then obviously Moonstruck, um, you know, you can't escape all the award nominations and the wins that it got as well. Um, so you can't help but go into it with a little bit of expectation, like we're in for something big, like, <laughs> yeah. like they love this one in the 80s. So let's see what 2020's McGee over here is thinking <laughs> about it. Um, and like I said, I just felt... Again, on the first viewing, I just felt just a bit flat, just a bit like underwhelmed by the end of it. Um, you know, there were some parts of it I really enjoyed. And I think one of the, sort of the key phrases you had there was, it is very much like um, like, like the world's most grounded fairy tale, a very New mm. York fairy tale, this um, not really rags to riches kind of thing, but just a very grounded romance. And there's... um quite an, an appealability to it where you kind of think 
you know, this is this is a thing that could feasibly happen. You could mm. meet a baker with one hand. Um, <laughs> um, and on the second viewing for me, um, although, again, I can't say that I'm in love with this film, I definitely appreciated it a lot more. And I think with a little sort of three-year gap as well, and with all sort of the knowledge of Cage that was and Cage that is to come from here as well, um, because I suppose contextually as well, I forget um, at this point in the podcast where I'm sort of more or less caught up with Cage. You, it's easy to forget early in his in his career that the man was a bit of a heartthrob. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of looked at this as like, God, I wish he'd pick me up by a table and just <laughs> <laughs> just scoop me up in his arms as well. Um, and in a lot of smaller movies, he was cast as like a heartthrob and a love interest in quite a lot of movies yeah. as well. And, and but he would still bring in like such a unique like the the voice that he's doing in Peggy Sue Got Married is like that's such a choice. And like he's played the romantic <laughs> lead in that movie, but he still is like not doing the conventional thing at all. He is still being like caged through and through. Valley Girl as well is another great example of him being the the heartthrob in it, but still very caged. Oh God, yeah. I mean. I see going into Valley Girl blind and, you know, Cage obviously mm. very young at the time as well. Sort of like that, that punk uh, guy. You think, like, God damn, like I can see, you know, <laughs> people would potentially have a Nicolas Cage poster on their wall sort of mm. back in the day. But then, as you said, he's still got those cages and there's, I recall, he's, he's got that scene where he's just kind of hiding in the bathroom and he's just doing like oh my karate God, yeah. stuff in there. <laughs> and I was like... That's the cage I know. That's yeah. him in there as well. Um, I think it's quite, it, it, it's it's great and admirable in the sense that um, I think even at this point where he was still sort of finding himself and the cage that we will come to know later on, there's the seedlings or the the croutons in the acting soup, if you will, <laughs> of, of of who Cage is in there. Um, and with those sort of explosive moments um, with him as as, as Ronnie, because um, I, I was reading into this that um, apparently the studios didn't really like him for this role following mm. test screenings, um, and it was uh, God bless the Queen herself, Cher, mm-hmm. uh, really fought his corner and wanted him to um, really be the one to have this role, otherwise she was going to step out, and obviously Cher wasn't will always be a mega star so mm-hmm. she's um you know went to bat for him do you do you think like this role could have worked the role of Ronnie could have worked with anyone else or is it one that you think Cage is was the right choice for this and you know with the choices that he makes as well yeah, I think that it's one of those things where it's really tough to see like how anybody else, like I, nobody else would do it the way that he did it. I don't know like if somebody else was in the role, if they like it would have been a very different performance and a really different character. So it's tough to see like maybe it would have worked in that way. But like I was reading that the studio really wanted Peter Gallagher for uh, the role and that like share screen tested with Peter Gallagher and with Nicolas Cage and to like kind of, you know, test them both out the chemistry and everything. And the studio still, as you said, still really wanted, didn't want Cage. Like they really still wanted Peter Gallagher and Cher was the one who was like, like, I'm not going to do it if it's not Nicolas Cage. So then they had to, you know, acquiesce and put Cage in there. And so imagining Peter Gallagher, who's an actor that I really like, and especially around this era, this is like a couple of years before Sex Lies and Videotape, like he's he's in a real nice pocket, but 
I can't imagine Peter Gallagher, one, having the theatricality that Cage does in some of those scenes, especially the impression that Cage makes like right off the jump when we first meet him and that monologue and everything about his hand. Like Peter Gallagher, I don't think could pull that off. But also I don't think Peter Gallagher could pull off the groundedness that Cage brings to it. Like this Mm -hmm. is a heartthrob kind of character, but he also is like really like of the earth. He's the total opposite of... Uh, Danny Aiello's character who's more like buttoned up kind of and like straight laced and I think that Gallagher is too too straight laced of a guy for us to really believe him as this like shoveling like underneath the the restaurant shoveling bread into you know the oven like Cage when we first meet him looks like he's like a coal miner uh, the way yeah. like just how much soot he has all over him from shoveling this in there and I think I don't think that I could see somebody else pulling off like introduced that way and then also being like this really beautiful handsome man when he goes to the opera and he's dressed up and everything there's so many different like avenues that this character has to capture and i think cage is the perfect guy to hit every single one of those buttons absolutely and so i was just looking back at the filmography and sort of forget like 87 this is the uh, raising arizona came out Mm -hmm. as well as you said peggy sue uh got married just came out the year before and I think this was more just down to like how it got released with the studios. But I always found it just incredible that following this, his next release was Vampire's, Vampire's Kiss, Kiss yeah. which is <laughs> which is so cage. I mean, not that I'm saying he has control about when his films get released, but mm-hmm. it, it's always struck me when you look at Cage's career and his action movies of the 90s being like a peak example of this when you think he's sort of going one way, like, oh, this is kind of like a leading man we're getting here. We get some comedy, we get some romance. Bang, vampire's kiss, uh, right hook. <laughs> you didn't see it coming. And then, you know, following kind of face-off, you get City of Angels. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, God. Um, which is which City of Angels is still one of my favorite, rep- well, favorite, not so much representation, but my favorite line of character ever delivers about sex Bearing in mind that he is an angel that hasn't experienced it before, the the great line of warm, which is just like, oh, <laughs> inc- it makes incredible. you never want to have sex again. <laughs> <laughs> makes you just want to crawl under a rock somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, in many ways, this was this was really the movie that's um, arguably really the movie that put Cage on the map mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people, and he was getting. Um, some nominations, not as many as Dukakis and Cher. Um, he was nominated at the Golden Globes, the 45th, uh, but lost out to Robin Williams for his performance in Good Morning Vietnam. Um, which see, like quite a stacked category that year as well. They had uh, Danny DeVito, Steve Martin, William Hurt, Patrick mm. Swayze as well. So um, a, a big year for... for um, for best actors um, there as well. But usually this is the part where I'd say, God damn you, the person who won, but I can't be bad that Robin Williams won. <laughs> I, I can't do that. I can't yeah. do that. That's, That's a pretty good performance. It's, I mean, I think a lot of those performances uh, would have earned it. I, But yeah, Cage is so good in it. And it is, it is, like you said, like such an interesting crux for him where it is, this is like the big studio hit. And looking back, I was, surprised to remember that this is his own the only cage movie i think that's been nominated for best picture at the oscars like leaving las vegas didn't get nominated adaptation didn't get nominated and so like this is the one that 
is sort of his biggest like awardsy conventional kind of on that level obviously he won the oscar himself for leave las vegas and has gotten nominations as an actor but yeah the fact that out of his entire career this is the only one that was nominated for best picture i think is an interesting point for like the kind of roles that he does choose and the kind of films that he does choose the fact that after this his next release was vampire's kiss i think the another one that i was thinking of while you were talking about like the action movies in the 90s the fact that um after national treasure like pretty much right after that is like lord of war and then the wicker man which are like that's such a crazy <laughs> turning point too it's it's sensational you go world trade center wicker man you go oh, national God, treasure world 2 trade center, bang yeah. bangkok dangerous <laughs> right. um drive angry <laughs> <laughs> his his filmography, and I say it with the utmost respect, is the epitome of the phrase "never let them know your next move." Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Pig which, followed by Willy's Wonderland, right? <laughs> uh, I think Willy's Wonderland, Pig, unbearable weight of massive talent, um, and then you know, slightly off topic. I kind of really enjoy the fact that with with Cage, you get these periods of just silence. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, Cage is off the grid. Where is Cage? And then, bang, you get the reveals of five new movies that are coming mm-hmm. out. Like, what? You <laughs> filmed five movies in a month? What? Yeah. I remember, like, t- I think TIFF last year, one of the festivals last year where, like, Butcher's Crossing was, like, coming out, and I had never heard of it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know Cage was, like, doing a Western. Like, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And then the beginning of this year i see like advertisements for the old way and i'm like oh is that that movie like but it's a completely different movie that i had no idea also existed like just two completely separate like very similar <laughs> like aesthetic posters yeah. that i had no idea existed that are coming out let me tell you when i say the cage podcast community was in disarray in january <laughs> we we didn't know what was going on in january um it's like, like interesting. Butcher's Crossing is it's had its intro at TIFF, and then it's doesn't seem to have like a distributor. Off the map, yeah, it's gone like the same way. And I've spoken about this with other like Cage podcasts. Um, the retirement plan is one that is allegedly completed, but we do not think this movie exists. <laughs> there is an, an unofficial. I'm, I'm air quoting here, but an unofficial post that exists for the movie, mm-hmm. and he's been he's been pictured with like fans in the full getup and stuff, but. It's just just gone off the grid, so it looks like it's going to be um, sympathy for the devil and or dream scenario next. Yeah, um, I saw. I had some friends who started going to some test screenings of uh, dream scenario and are saying that it's really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's it's at least screening, doing test screenings and stuff. So hopefully, I know we've we've hit that point of Cage's career now where he's he's just making movies for fun that we may, may never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, really respect it. I really respect it. Um, but sort of going back to um, Moonstruck, obviously, you know, he he got that test screening, he made it, and uh, you know, as, as I've been saying, on a on a a second viewing, it's it is like a really interesting performance because it is much like the the one other thing he loves is it's very sort of operatic and Mm -hmm. it's every scene that he's in it's you know it's it's almost a little bit too much and yet Mm. at the same time um there is some there is like between him and Cher and the 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 scenes they have it's and again I say this uh, you know as I said as as someone who is not really a rom-com kind of guy there is an electricity in their chemistry Mm -hmm. as well um 
and there were a lot of you know great sort of monologues some like great quotable moments um obviously the first one being as we were touching on earlier when we first get introduced to him in the uh the bakery cellar with the ovens and at the start where um Loretta has called him at her then fiance's behest there's been a there's a five-year rift um we just can't have this feud anymore I want my brother to come to my to our to our wedding I need you to come and sort of get him go and call him and then when we first like meet him he's got the vest on he's got that uh tattoo the white mm-hmm. gloves um and it, I think it, he's just staring into that fire into like the furnace <laughs> um just sort of giving you the idea of the of the intensity um it, for you the first time we were introduced to um ronnie um did his sort of introduction and i suppose how soon we get the monologue like get me the big knife i'm gonna <laughs> cut my throat um did that did that work for you were you almost like a bit like this is a lot um how, how was that sort of scene for you I think I think the first time I saw it, I definitely was like, and I think it's intentional, right? Like it's very jarring. It's like, who the hell is this dude? Like I think that yeah. they they really play it up. Speaking of like opera, like he feels very like Phantom of the Opera kind of as like he has the disfigurement, but he also like when we first when she makes the call to him, they make such an intentional choice to not show us like his face. We see him like from over the shoulder when he's on the phone with her, just yeah, staring mm-hmm. into you know the fire, and then even when she goes to the bakery when we first see him like see his face it's at like a big distance he's like way in the distance at the the other end of you know the bakery than where she's at and so he like walks towards us it's a very like operatic introduction and then he launches right into the monologue and it's like there is like an absurdity to it because you also like he tells the story like you you hear that they haven't spoken in five years and obviously from what we've gotten from ronnie so far clearly something horrific has happened some horrible thing has happened between the two of them and then he tells the story and it's like it almost seems like it's not his brother's fault at all like cage (laughs) you know he he got his hand pulled off while while making this you know food together and like but it's not it's not anything that like his brother, his brother's Johnny, right? Danny Aiello's character, like nothing mm-hmm. that he like actually like physically did to him. So it's almost like, bro, why are you so bad about this? But <laughs> it fits so well with Cage's character, I think. And it is like, it really takes you aback. And I think it sets you up well for something really interesting that this movie does. Like a lot of rom-coms have that like that enemies to lovers arc where you spend almost the whole movie with these two characters, the two romantic leads, like at odds with one another, and they slowly kind of come together. And I think Moonstruck with the two of them plays it so fast that that arc, they are immediately like at odds. They're like fighting, bickering with each other. And then within one scene, they go back to to Ronnie's place and they have, you know, a little, a little get together. Cher kind of takes care of him and they the electricity is just so palpable between them that it's like yeah. we're not waiting making you wait the entire movie like there he's gonna make the move they're gonna kiss right now she throws everything to the wind it says rip like rip my skin off like you know make sure there's nothing left of me yeah. and it's so gorgeous <laughs> and romantic and it just feels like this whirlwind like crazy thing and then you still have a whole movie to get through and it's like <laughs> what's the rest of this movie gonna be i think it's it's very striking but i think it totally works yeah, like 
it does move like f- quite fast and not in like a, a bad way at all. It's like I said, I, you sort of have that scene where Sherry's saying like, you know, take out all your anger on me. There's nothing mm-hmm. left. And I'm just like, madam, this is a PG film. <laughs> <laughs> like, woof. I think that's, that speaks to the power of a steak and spaghetti dinner. Like <laughs> things, things can happen when you, when you mix those two food groups. Um, I think it's one of those things that kind of speaks to, I guess, all the characters in this movie in a way, because a lot of them um, are quite downtrodden or struggling in a certain way. Ron is obviously, I think it's a perfect analogy, Phantom of the Opera himself and with his disfigurement and he's down there, I assume, every other day threatening to cut his throat. <laughs> the, the big, to, the, to, the, to the extent that the people in the bakery, they know what the big knife they, is. Yes. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't the first time he's threatened to take his own life. There's um, like the, the men around them seem like it's just like, this is just any other day what he's doing. And like the women, like the, especially the one woman clearly has like a crush on him and is like crying like, I, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not like, stop asking me to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, this one of the employees, like he sort of storms off, like he's the most tormented man I've ever known, and she's cr- happy crying. Um, and obviously, like Loretta just watched this, like the fuck is this yeah. guy? What? But it's but it, it it's such like a big like I lost my hand, I lost my mind. Johnny has his hand, Johnny has his right, and, and like weirdly, like. You know, we can do impressions of it, and it works. It, it mm. just somehow works, and I think it really speaks to how like tight a lot of this script is as well. But mm. you've got, um, like I say, Ronnie, who's living in a basement with a big knife. Like Johnny, in his own way, his brother is quite over dramatic because he's like, uh, like, oh, we can't talk about the wedding. I've got to go and see my mm-hmm. mother. Like uh, he said something at this point, which is like. Um, Family is the most important thing. Like it's like nothing can replace the family. I see that now. <laughs> when he's like standing over his uh, like mother's bed and he's mm. just like sobbing with his back to the camera and she's just shooing him away with his hand going, oh god. Oh, like she's what? sick of him. She's tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely tired. Um, and likewise, Loretta's family, um, Cosmo, who is having an affair, Rose, who is feeling like lonely and jilted as well. Mm. Um, and then you get, um, uh, I think Rose's brother and her sister-in-law who are just like, it's the moon, let's fuck, it's the moon, hey! <laughs> and w- one of my notes were just like, the moon has the people in, in a real way mm. in they're, this They're film. truly moonstruck. It's very like, it's almost werewolf movie-esque how much the moon just takes over the emotions of these characters and makes them behave in, in these operatic ways. It's all, it like gives this big full moon as like the justification for why all of the emotions are so exaggerated and all of the behavior is so exaggerated. But I love, I love that you mentioned it being a tight script because I think that it, that's such a great descriptor for it. It has so many different characters and plot lines that we're following, like so many different affairs that are happening. Like Olivia yeah. Dukakis ends up having this sort of like emotional affair with John Mahoney's character as well, who's like a guy that we've been seeing a little arc happening with him in the background leading up to it. And there's so many different kinds of relationships that we're seeing but all of them feel very like real none of them feel very like none of them feel subplotty every single one feels like it is the most important thing that we're seeing when we're seeing it it doesn't ever feel like 
oh, we're waiting to get back to share in Nicolas Cage. It feels like every time that like a different character is on screen, even the the brother and the sister-in-law, who I think are just so lovely, like they are just so wonderful together. Their little moment where he sees the moon again and is like, where's, is that Cosmo? Cosmo's moon's here again. And she's like, come back to bed, like come make love to me kind of thing. Like it's so sweet. And I just love seeing all those different things, but it never feels padded out. It never feels stretched out or anything like that. It is so tight, as you said, which I think is really difficult to pull off without it feeling like it feels very effortless. Yeah. And it, it, one of the things, again, on the second viewing that I appreciated more um, it is even with the smaller characters, like you say, with John Mahoney's character and even the... Um, uh, uh, the married couple in the shop at the start when Loretta mm, buys a drink mm. from, um, even the smallest characters, they do get these really lovely moments to shine. And they're, um, the, the, the lady saying like husband, just like, oh, you're a wolf. Like you've got a wolf in you. I see a wolf in you. But then he turns, he's like, you know what I see in you? The woman I married. Yeah, and, uh, e- and even like me with my, my cold black heart, I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's kind of sweet. But then... I, I suppose, in a way, I suppose the, the wolf idea is obviously moon connection as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Loretta later describes sort of Ronnie as a wolf. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> that boy got that dog in him. Um, <laughs> shortly before getting picked up and, you know, yeeted into bed as well. So <laughs> the moon motif, I think, like you said, it, it, it is almost justification for the characters in this movie to wax the way that they are and um it's the opinion some people like are sad looking at the moon and then there's other people mm-hmm. uh i think you said but like the, the brother and the sister-in-law that lovely moment they have where he he turns to her in the bed i think she says something like uh oh you look you look 25 years yeah younger. Mm-hmm. yeah that's exactly it oh so lovely so sweet i definitely <laughs> watching it even watching it the other day you know which is my like third or fourth time watching it when she said that i was same as you with the, with the other scene like when she said that i was like oh oh my god i know i was i was i did i did check the moon for the uk at the time of recording i think it's a three-quarter moon so i I can't be my most loving self unfortunately unfortunately you know if if you caught me a week later it could have been a you know a whole (laughs) smile smiles ear to ear and maybe i would have um you know said a moon truck is the greatest film ever (laughs) um but there's um obviously with, with you know, Ronnie and we were saying sort of how quickly it moves as well. And I think we can agree, you know, by whatever moon based juju was in the air in the eighties when that was being made, it just seems to work. And, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're sort of two sides of the same coin, Johnny and Loretta. Loretta is, um, quite early in the film. She, I wouldn't say, is thrilled about it, but she accepts engagement to uh, Johnny. Yeah, she even says she doesn't love him. She just, you know, needs to settle down, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, needs to settle down. But then she's like, "My life, I've been cursed by bad luck. I didn't do my first marriage the right way. It didn't go through." Um, they didn't have like a big ceremony. Yeah, needed to have a ceremony, and he's like, "If you're going to propose, it needs to be a ring." So, like, well, I've only got my pinky rings. Like, oh, just, just, just use the pinky <laughs> ring. It's, it's more of like a, a need than a mm-hmm. want. Just like I need, I'm 37 years old. Mm-hmm. I need to get settled down. Um, because she just work in the books and various different places. Um, I think she, uh, 
she was married to her first husband was it for two years and he got hit by a bus hit instantaneous by a bus. Yeah, death. Yeah. regretted not having any kids with him because now she doesn't have any kids yeah um i, I tell you as old as time the old husband bus the old hate husband when it bus happens is, hate when it happens but you can't avoid it the number of husbands <laughs> of, of, that keep getting hit by buses i tell them i tell them all the time <laughs> stop it um and then johnny obviously you know as we said on during his hand monologue he um said he he blamed johnny um uh ronnie blamed johnny for distracting him and he put his hand in the the bread slicer and then his fiance left him because he was mm-hmm. maimed um and neither of them have really sort of been able to by choice whatever move on from these things i've really defined their their, their later years as well mm. um so when we sort of you know that they're talking about this and then we get to the scene where they're eating steaks and spaghettis <laughs> and they're, they're they're being picked up um you know what, what were you sort of thinking with all their backstories because again for a lot of people there's a lot of hurt with these characters as well and I think in a way a lot of it is presented in a nice enough way where I don't think you feel too morose for any of the characters um but there's a there's a you know like I said I think there's a lot of angles and there's a lot of backstories with all of these um did you think that all I guess all the backstories worked um did you think there was anything that was maybe not that didn't quite click for you yeah, I think I think it fits the tone of the film, right? Like in a in a certain film, like the my husband got hit by a buzz kind of thing would play too silly, but they play it really earnestly. Like that's just you know what happened, and even like in the delivery of it, you can feel that the characters like understand that it's a little bit like a little bit absurd. But I think it fits with that like operatic tone. It's all very exaggerated, but within keeping keeping this grounded reality of everything. And I think that, like you said, they do feel like these two kind of broken people in a similar way where they're not able to move on with their lives because they're so attached to these traumas that they have. And I think that that's why, that's part of why they work so well together because that's such the difference between what's going on with her and Johnny versus her and Ronnie, where her and Johnny, it is all very like, just going through the motions it feels like an obligation there's no passion there at all and it just feels like she's doing it because she feels like she needs to do it and do it the right way because she's cursed and all you know these other things and with ronnie it is so spontaneous there's clearly just that electricity and they just you know get swept up in it and it feels really like natural how they fall into this rhythm with each other where like he they go back to his apartment and she just immediately starts making him a steak and he's like i like my steak like cook it well done and she's like i'm gonna cook it you know like raw like you're gonna have it raw basically like you need some blood in you and they just really fall into this sweet rhythm and i think that one of the things that i love so much about the relationships across moonstruck is that none of them feel like there's there's a lot of this like little little bits of like venom but in a way that feels very very natural and very like italian too like these little like disapprovals and disagreements and little bickerings even the couple in like the liquor store with the wolf thing and like they they have these little like bickerments but it's almost like that's how they express like their love for each other and then it like creates this this outpouring of emotion that then is so heightened that they just have to they have to fuck and get it out you know <laughs> like 
This is this is what I've been saying. That it, it's that wolf. <laughs> it's that moon, and it's that wolf, and it's in all of us somewhere inside us. There are two wolves, and they are fucking and sucking. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. Um, God damn it. Um, I, I do totally agree, though. Like a lot of the arguments and sort of the. Um, I guess like the tensions on this and I suppose, you, you know, the big tension in this is obviously the pending return of Johnny who's mm. gone to, gone to Sicily. A lot of the tension in this do feel um, very real, very understandable. Something like, Oh, I've, I've, I understand this. This is something I've experienced before. And it's one of those, especially with some scenes where they almost linger a bit too long and, some of the characters can sometimes seem a bit accentuated. Like it, I think it has that, as we said, that fairy tale like aura to it that makes it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I think you can't help but get a little bit invested in sort of the arc of Loretta and uh, Ronnie as well. These sort of almost like, like I say, two sides of the same coin, like different but similar. These two like almost opposing forces where at the start, and I think you said this earlier with most rom-coms, you've sort of set that they're going to bicker and then mm. they're going to learn that, well, maybe we're not so different. Then by <laughs> the end it's wedding bells and like, and all that thing. And, but this, it's just, um, it's, it's, it, everything moves very fast. And then by the time where they've had that sort of first affair, um, and, and Ronnie's telling Loretta that he, you know, he's known this, he's known this lady, you know, for a few hours. And then the next morning, it's like, I, I love you. Loretta is sort of fretting. Is like, I'm literally engaged to your brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you know, we get that you know, the famous line, the slap, like snap out of it. And um, and then we find that Ronnie's two loves is like Loretta and opera. And he's like, look, come with me to the opera. Just, just, I just want to, the two things that I love in one place, and then I will, I will drop this whole thing. I'll leave. I'll, I'll, I'll go out of it. Um, which sort of brings us on to the, um, I guess like the, how it calls that the leveling up, if you will, of like Loretta, where she has that spontaneous trip into Cinderella's beauty store and the spontaneous <laughs> buying, and you, you get it in these films sometimes where it's the. Um, almost like the music montage girls yeah, just want to have fun makeover, kind of thing yeah. the makeover but this one like it it does feel different like it just feels again like to the film's credit everything just feels grounded um and i was like huh that was a that was a good makeover sequence which is something I've, <laughs> I've never said about a movie before i was like this is a good yeah. makeover sequence i think it's partly because like you feel like the the detail of like the women in the salon clearly have been wanting to give her this makeover for such a long time and <laughs> she's begrudgingly like refused it because she's been so set in her ways of like my life i'm in this life where i'm settled i'm like sort of miserable and like that's just kind of you know what my station in life is going to be and so they hear her she comes in and she's like i want to make over i want to really do it up and they're seeing her you know opening up herself a little bit more to this idea that she can have more in life she can have you know this dream fairy tale that she wants and i'll say quickly shares hair in this movie is fantastic i think it looks great with the grays i think it looks fantastic yeah. even before the makeover <laughs> but yeah it's it's a lovely scene and yeah it feels very 
rooted in like this familiarity that these characters have with each other where you totally buy that like they all have this like shared history whether it's ronnie and johnny who like we don't even see together until the final scene but you can still feel like that family history with the two of them or the family history with uh like letter at his family even like the grandfather and like him living in there walking his dogs and everything and like how he you know kind of works in and out of it like everybody does feel like it feels so authentic like so authentic like everything in this family the whole time yeah and i suppose quickly on the grandpa as well part of me thinks like God, I love five dogs when I'm older. That Me too. Great. Yes, I was my my partner and I were watching it together, and when those dogs came down the stairs, I was like, "That's gonna be me, bro. Like that's that's us." <laughs> Watch <laughs> bookmark, out. <laughs> bookmark this day. That's me. And I I I now have like one German Shepherd myself, which is for now quite enough. But at the same time, like this is the dog owner in me now. When those five dogs came down the stairs, I was just thinking to myself, "That house stinks." Yeah, the house stinks mm. of dog, mm-hmm. um, but you know that's 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 the price we pay for having like five dogs. We can just have a lovely. That house smells and, like uh, dog piss and tomato sauce. Oh man, what a what a life! What a, <laughs> what a blessed life! Um, but then obviously we we sort of come to uh, well, I suppose there's there's a, there's a scene in the church in between as well where. Mm. Loretta sort of confesses to her infidelity and part of me thinks like, man, you just go to a church and just say like, I goofed, I fucked up. And like, <laughs> that is, man, I've got to convert to this stuff. Um, I love this the way po- that she slips the infidelity in between like, I took the Lord's name in vain. I like did what I can't remember <laughs> what the third thing is like a very small yeah. thing. And in the middle, and so the, the priest is like, what was that thing in the, what was that thing in the middle you just said? That's kind of that's kind of a big one. <laughs> just just give me those hail marys and let's uh, forget about it and move on. Um, but she does she does meet her mother Rose at the church as well, and um, Rose is like, "Oh, your dad was expecting you back. I covered for you." And then she just kind of drops it, like, "I know that Cosmo's cheating on me." Mm-hmm. And then Loretta kind of doesn't really want to deal with it because she's got her own things going on as well. Um, so I, I suppose at this point, you know, obviously before we get to the um, uh you know the big scene at the met where they go to the opera obviously cosmo and rose are having their their own sort of like b story i guess as well which which supposed with everything all the arcs really the main arcs you care about all come to a head and are all neatly wrapped up by the time of the family dinner table right at the end of the movie mm-hmm. but in terms of like rose's arc as well especially um obviously with the olympia dukakis who as you said uh won many a supporting award for this um how did you sort of um, feel about her arc and Cosmo's arc as the uh, as the movie progressed as well? I love I love Olympia Dukakis in this. I think it's the I love that she won the Oscar for it because I think I don't know if it's the kind of performance that would win an Oscar like these days. It feels very like eighties like appreciation for this kind of performance, and I think that it is one of those ones where like she has such a genuine connection with this character and with this she's almost like the the sort of like ghost of christmas of christmas future for loretta where she sees that her mother is not satisfied with her life and she's just kind of like dealing with it and like she knows that her husband's having this affair and she doesn't really feel like she can do anything about it so she just is kind of like put upon and we have the the scene 
at night where we're seeing the big moon after we hear about, you know, Cosmo's moon and how lovely Cosmo and uh, I want to check her name, Rose, Cosmo and Rose's their like courtship was and how much love was there and how like beautiful that was and how that love is just kind of lost now and they don't have that passion for each other anymore. And so when the the brother is looking at the moon and he feels that romance and everything and obviously Cher and Nicolas Cage are looking at the moon and they have that passion and it's so gorgeous. Rose looks at the moon and you just feel that sense of longing in her. And I think Dukakis plays it so beautifully because she she's having to do it all with like her expressions, with just her face. And she has to hold that feeling of longing, of loss, of this passion and this romance from her life, like in her body and just in how she like carries herself through the movie. And I think she does it tremendously well. And Cosmo, this guy this guy's a son of a bitch. Like, come on, man. What are you doing? Like, you got this wonderful lady, this gorgeous woman at home. And like, what are you doing stepping out on her for? Like, what? come on, man. You just, mm. you think you need that to live? Come on, buddy. Like, it's it's killing me. But I think it's all, I think it's all played out very wonderfully. As you said, with the tight script, I think that everything, nothing ever feels like it's like filling in time to get back to the the main part of it or whatever. I mean, say what you want about Cosmo, but the man sells a good copper pipe. He he really does. That's I love like I love the little details of scenes like in this movie. Like that scene did not need to be in this movie at all, but it adds so much to like our understanding of this character. And it's also just like its own fun little short film of a scene too. The scene with the liquor store I think is a great one with that too, and the other couple. I also love the scene um, when Cher's watching. Danny Aiello leaving to to go to Italy to see his dying mother and like the the old lady is like watching the plane going with Cher yes, too yeah. and tells her about how she put a curse on the plane and like tells her the whole backstory of her sister and how her sister stole like her man and so she put this curse on the plane like it's such a fun tiny little moment that adds you know a great another level to the movie and it's just hilarious yeah it's one of these things where it's you know, the little moments like that, you know, the, the couple in the shop, the old lady at the airport doesn't need to be in the film, but it really adds like a flavor and like an additional character to, you know, this area of Brooklyn and the, the, the movie as a whole that, um, again, it just makes it feel like a real, in, a, a real lived environment where mm-hmm. there's just so many other stories that are going on. Um, and it's just in the course of the, you know, 90, 100 minutes, we just get these but as i've said they're also um they all feel so investable as well uh because olympia the carcass i think like you said would would her role have won a supporting uh award these days i'm not sure um but she sort of plays the role of rose with such like a like a quiet strength mm. which she you know never sort of quite loses it um and has to deal with sort of so much of her own accord. Um, and there's the scene where she's sort of dining alone. Again, she she knows that Cosmo's out there doing whatever. Yeah. And we have that, like, a character at the start of the film, you think, oh, that's just a funny little thing that's happened with, like, uh, with John Mahoney, with Perry, which, if you don't know, played uh, played the dad in Frasier, <laughs> um, which apparently I read as well. He said that this this role was kind of fundamental in helping him get cast in Frasier as well. But then you think it's kind of like, well, just a bit of like a weird old guy trying to hit in a young lady, gets like a, a water or a wine to the face. 
and then it happens again and then you get this this like insight into his character as well and i think it's part of rose and she has this conversation with johnny later on where she's just trying to understand for herself like why do men Mm. And she's trying to understand, <laughs> she's trying to, the infinite question. Um, with, with that scene with like Rose and Perry at the, at the, uh, the restaurant and uh, Perry's sort of backstory, uh, like I said, it's one that I didn't expect, but I was like, ah, now, now I'm kind of invested in these guys as well. What's going yeah. on? What's going on here? Like the, like the Perry arc, um, how, how did you um, sort of find all of that as well? Yeah, I think that it's really it's really wonderfully drawn out because I think that it is when you first see him, it just feels very like a bit, you know, especially like mm-hmm. the repeated use. Like we see this family obviously going to the same restaurant and like everybody, there's so many people who are clearly like regulars at this little restaurant. And like, it's just, oh yeah, that's the guy who's always bringing a much younger woman with him and getting, you know, humiliated during it. Like somehow every single time he just blows it. But I think that when you get that backstory, I think there is that connection that Rose feels with him that I think traces through a lot of these characters, as you were mentioning with Loretta and Ronnie and how they bond too. that, like a lot of these characters are at points in their life where they're missing something that they used to have and they're trying to like connect with it again. And for Perry, it is like him looking for as a lot of you know men hitting middle and slightly past middle age do like trying to find that youthful vitality again and he gives us a story about how you know he's a professor and every now and then every year there's one student who he looks at and they look at him with like such you know like longing in their eyes such like romance such you know passion they they clearly love him and like that's like he's almost addicted to it and he wants to pursue it but then he realizes that like you can't capture what he's looking for again in that because that's not like that's very like uh temporary it's very like circumstantial it's very like i mean there's obviously the power dynamic that's at play with something like that and so connecting with rose opens him up and opens him up to understanding that like this thing that i'm looking for maybe i'm not looking for it in the right place or maybe i don't need to like settle into what i think i'm settling into with it and i think that it is a great job of developing this character more than what we would expect him to be initially and giving a different kind of story with him than you would think that he would have like you would think that he's just kind of a shitty dude but i feel like nobody in this movie is really like just a shitty person like even even cosmo has you know layers to him and ways that we can feel for him and understand that he's not like a terrible person he's just fucking up in this one way and i think danny aiello as well like has you know dimension to him and like at the end i kind of feel a little bit sad for danny aiello like he feels like he at the end of the movie like a lot of other people have their stuff kind of worked out more or less danny aiello i'd like to see moonstruck too where it's like him trying to figure (laughs) out like him him getting his groove back so to speak yeah yeah it's it's again interesting to all the characters in this one none of them are sort of you know, outright villains or anything like that. So they're all just at various stages when they've they've lost something that they used to have, and they none of them really know how to sort of move on. Yeah. Um. You know, with all of that, and um, and, and then I think it, you know, it's you sort of think where the whole Perry thing is going to go because he walks Rose back from the restaurant, and then they sort of bump into the grandpa, and I think I think at that point something clicks in Rose, which is like 
what, what are you doing? Yeah. And I think there's a part of it that maybe thinks about, say, well, Cosmo's done it to me. But then she's like, look, I'm, I'm faithful to my marriage. I can't, yeah. I can't let you in. And then Perry just sort of put, pops his collar up and walks off into the into the night. He um, he heard those blues calling, those toss salad and scrambled <laughs> eggs. And he goes, goes back to his one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> goes back to his one-bedroom and lives his... Uh, enjoyable life um but but then um you know we've got obviously quite important scene at the opera they're all um loretta and ronnie are all sort of dolled up and uh they're both both saying like oh you're beautiful no you're beautiful and i'm like you are both you are both beautiful <laughs> this is and I, I do quite like that shot where they're looking for each other by the fountain oh, and then I love it kind it. of like it, it sort of lingers on like the back of loretta for like almost too long in you have this thing of oh they I think they're not going to find each other and I think it's just uh just a really interesting shot as well. And it's um, really subtle when they do finally see each other. Like it's not they don't make the music like super swell and like it's a huge moment. Like she just she gives this like little smile, which I think is so true to like what what actually happened in that moment. Like she clearly she gives off the impression initially that she's just doing this to like get it out of the way so that he can get it out of his system and they can move on. But when she sees him like this she can't contain this, this tiny little smile that she gives that's clearly like she's so excited and happy to be here and his mouth drops a little he's you know so in love with her clearly immediately like it's so heartwarming just that little moment when they see each other this is the quite touching moment as well where it's obviously quite affected by the opera and um mm-hmm. you know there's the, the love story being told through the opera and and it's almost saying like, oh, these two people that want to be together, but they can't because of these reasons. And you know, like Ronnie's like taking her hand and kissing it, and she's crying. Um, you know, it, it speaks to the power of live live theater and live performance. I mean, not too long ago, I, I saw a live production of Jersey Boys, and I was like, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I totally, I totally get it. This is great. Um, and obviously, as well, you, you see. Um, Cosmo and I think it's mm. Mona that um, I think is the, the lady who's having the, the affair with um, and you have that oh, are they going to bump into each other or are they not and they do um, and obviously it's not an explosive thing it's like why are you here why are mm. you here who's this but who's that <laughs> we were never here <laughs> um, with that sort of it's, it's almost like an like an anti-confrontation did yeah. you sort of enjoy that or did you want it to be a bit more explosive or do you think it worked how it was no i think it's really smart because it does it does the thing that a lot of like elements of this movie did where like they could play it like super sitcom right and like super super like that thing that you said like at the beginning of of our conversation where like with cage's performance which i think reflects in the movie itself where it goes just enough to where like it is cinematic and like it's keeping us like emotionally invested and like on our toes and engaged and like sort of silly like a little bit like screwball-y but not fully going into screwball like it's it's just a little bit without ever going too far i think it's a really delicate balance and i think that's a credit too to john patrick shanley's script and norman jewison's directing which i think he does a really great job of threading that needle where it's never going too far to where it just feels like okay this is a little bit much this is like a little bit silly like oh yuck 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 they see each other like oh ha 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 but like it's it really does like it the the anti like climactic nature of it is 
like a really sweet little like pulling the rug out from under you in an unexpected way where like I think my initial interpretation of the movie as being like very conventional was kind of off because I think it's really unconventional just in more subtle ways that I probably didn't pick up on when I was like 17 and watching it for the first time and just mm-hmm. like kind of dismissing it as a romance. Yeah. Um, I think with this movie as well, it's one where the characters in the world, they kind of exist in these either or situations, either you have good luck or you have bad luck. Either everything's great mm-hmm. or it's not, you're in love or you're not in love. You're. I think the way the sort of, the film opens and closes like you're alive or you are dead as well. There's mm-hmm. like almost very, I don't know, strict binaries in this film, but it's like they are, all the characters are learning to sort of overcome these things that are holding them back. And um, by the power of that goddamn moon, they've become <laughs> more whole. Um, and it sort of brings me to that conversation that Rose and Johnny have towards the end as well, where she's just kind of at a wit's end almost. And she's saying to him, why do men act in this way? Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, well, from a biblical sense, you know, it's the whole rib thing. They're trying to chase the thing. There's, mm-hmm. They've got a hole in them. But then just like, it's like, you know, I think men just fear death. And she's like, yes, That's exactly yes, yeah. you're all cowards and you fear <laughs> death. It's like, okay, cool. Like, that's a, you know, a lot to unpack there in a PG film. <laughs> um, but then there's that, um, like, Cosmo comes back. And I think one of the, even though, you know, Cosmo's not in the right for what he does. There's his little mannerisms in the portrayal where you can tell he's not quite committed to it. The first time he drops off the woman he's having the affair with, mm. like he's waving and, uh, and then his face just drops. He's like, oh. and then when they're at the opera, she's like, you've not commented on my dress tonight. And he's just like, yeah, it's very bright. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, he's not quite committed to it. Um, but there's just that little bit where Cosmo comes back and Rose says something like, it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to die like everyone else. Yeah. Oh, so um, good. She is, she is a fucking legend, man. As <laughs> like, what, what a way to humble someone. It's like <laughs> one day you're going to die. Um, obviously just, that's me knocking my microphone around. It's that goddamn moon. Um, just before that, I see there's, you know, we're talking about monologues, another Ron, Ronnie yeah. monologue where he's, he's talking about love. Um, it's like love doesn't make things nice. Love ruins things. Um, it breaks your heart. Uh, snowflakes and stars are perfect, but people aren't perfect. People ruin themselves. They fall in love with the wrong people. And uh, stories are all bullshit. Now come upstairs and get in my bed. And just like, <laughs> God damn, he's done it again. Um, yeah. yeah. So for like the second sort of like Ronnie monologue, um, did you? was that another one where you just like, a wooden hand but full pumping heart (laughs) yeah i think i mean i think that is like that's the moment too right where the the kitchen scene between the two of them where he first kisses her and you're like yeah i get it like i get why like she cannot resist this and that's the moment too where like even after the whole opera like you can feel her she's sort of trying to commit to like not committing with this dude like she still is like kind of trying to pull away and that's like such a great that's such a great movie moment like that's such a movie monologue like such a like a cliche kind of like big movie scene but cage gives it full like authenticity like you really feel like this dude because too like he is he's in love with the opera and like he is such like ronnie is such an operatic guy 
you fully buy that he would mm-hmm. like genuinely just launch into this monologue like it's, it's so true to his character it doesn't feel like out of left field for him to launch into this like proclamation of love and you like you get once he's like halfway through him doing that monologue you're like there's no way that she could ever like resist this dude and i think that it's such a great scene too because it feels like the thesis statement of the entire movie where it's like love even though this movie has such like a magical storybook quality to it like it's also saying like real life is not magic it's not curses and you know faded loves it's not storybooks but it's you know it's fucking love so like let's just go upstairs and like do our thing and like we're in love with each other like things are messy like every relationship in this movie is messy but it always comes back to that love which i think is just such a gorgeous i think that's why it's such a gorgeous romance throughout like the whole thing is because it doesn't hide the messiness of it all it doesn't have this like storybook rom-com of like they don't like each other now they love each other now everything's perfect and like that's that's it like they figured it all out like they didn't figure it all out but like they love each other and like they have this electric chemistry and like they have what the other person needs at this moment so like it works yeah absolutely and like you said i think that monologue is is really just the you know what this movie is and what it's trying to say like it it's not perfect it can't be perfect none of us are perfect enough to make it perfect um but through the power of fucking and sucking you and i are gonna figure <laughs> this thing you and that's i, what they, I think this. that's what they said in all the meetings uh, prepping you know pitching this movie is that the power of fucking and sucking is what we're selling right here it's <laughs> like so working title moon fuck <laughs> i was like that's Trying to tra- change some letters. Is, is something, something rhyme with fuck or moon suck? No, I don't think that's quite it. Closer, <laughs> closer. So I think it's on the. It's so close. It's on the tip so of close. my tongue. <laughs> um, and then eventually, a month later, they got it down to a <laughs> movie. Um, I see. But by the, by this point as well, we get to um, really the climactic scene where the family are all there in the kitchen and. Loretta turns up, she's got a love bite in her neck and Rose is like, look, Johnny's going to be here any second. But then Ronnie turns up and then um, Raymond and uh, Rita arrive as well. And with this scene, this is kind of like, um, you know, a 10 or so minute scene, but all the threads start getting solved. All the storylines get sort of, you know, quite fairly neatly woven up as well. Um, And I think the first time I watched this, I, I sort of thought to myself, this has all been wrapped up very quickly, very mm. sort of neatly. I think on a, on a second view, like I say, I was a lot more receptive to it than I was initially. Um, but with this sort of scene where, you know, everything is is coming to a head and um, all the dramas are being sort of concluded, um, does this sort of work for you? Did you sort of think it was too quick? Um, or do you think it was, it was sort of like, spot on for what we've had so far i think like you the first time that i saw it i think that i did feel like it was too quick and like wrapping things up a little bit too conveniently and then like in repeated viewings i definitely grew in appreciation for it where it does have like even in its own little ways it has these sort of like rug pulls that the rest of the movie does like the moment where like like the scene that we feel like we're building up to right is 
like all these big confrontations are going to happen. Loretta's going to tell Johnny about her and Ronnie, and it's going to be this huge thing. And like Rose is going to confront Cosmo, and it's going to be this huge thing. But then when those moments happen, like Rose confronts Cosmo, tells him that he has to stop seeing this woman. He stands up very dramatically, hits the table, sits down, and is just like, okay. And like, that's it. It's just done, like resolved. And then like, Loretta is prepping, you know, she has to tell Johnny about everything. She has to break this news to him. It's going to be this huge moment. Johnny comes in and is like, my mother's alive. We can't get married. Like, I'm sorry. And she's just like, great. Like where I wasn't planning on marrying you like that, that actually works out perfectly for what, you know, my plans were. And then like the, then Ronnie, you know, asks for the ring gets down and like proposes to Loretta. And you're just thinking like, what is Johnny like? Johnny is like sitting like beside himself, bereft. Like, what happened during this like couple days that I was away? <laughs> like, yeah. what is going on here? But I think it's it's so perfectly like calibrated, and I think that you know, reading up on it too, like Norman Jewison like really rehearsed the hell out of this like whole scene to make sure that like the blocking and like the movements of all the characters, like everything was like like even the the char- the actors understanding the like exact points of the moods of everybody was like really nailed perfectly before they like put it together to the point where like I this is like from IMDb trivia so I don't know if this you know take it with a grain of salt but they said that like he was fined by the actors union for not letting the actors go to lunch for it and I think that it speaks like when I was watching it too it did feel a lot of times, especially knowing that the movie was written by John Patrick Shanley, like the famous playwright and everything that like, it does feel like very like stagey, but not in a way where that's like, you know, a negative thing that I'm saying that's not a detriment at all. It feels really like thought out and planned out for all of these characters and all this dialogue and everything to maneuver in just the right way to get us through it to where I went from feeling the first time, like maybe it moves a little bit too quickly. Things are getting resolved too quickly to the second time being like, Oh, that's actually the perfect way that this, that this specific movie would wrap things up because this movie is not, you know, very clean cut. It's not very like conventional. It is sort of like messy and a little bit more like haphazard than rom-coms would conventionally be where it is like that very like point a to point b narrative of the characters don't confront their issues until the very last moment or whatever and like they come to it all in like these really like abstract kind of ways where it's like a puzzle box cutting together whereas moonstruck is like let's just get every single character in the room together and all the shit's gonna get worked out (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely like I kind of thought on this one as like on this viewing is like, well, yeah, I think this is, this is the optimal ending because almost I think a, a more explosive thing, you know, Johnny Ronnie coming to blows or whatever, it mm-hmm. just wouldn't have felt, I don't know, authentic to sort of the experience I'd had with this movie so far. And then just for everything to be like, just to work out so well, it's like, yeah, mother's yeah, mother's just alive now. So if we get married, it, it's, it's a no go. <laughs> she will, she will die if we get married um which isn't that like that's so similar to it's honeymoon in vegas right where like cage's mother like dies and like says that he can't get married and so like that's like the whole thing why he's not marrying sarah jessica parker is that right in honeymoon in vegas yeah yes i think right at the start he he, he tells her he won't marry or something and then yeah you're skydiving just, with all the elvises yeah cage of these movies with dying mothers and marriages <laughs> 
listen, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a living, it's a living, <laughs> you know, um, obviously I think, like you said, that what, what's going through Johnny's head, cause he's standing there, he's, you know, soon to be ex-fiance standing there, love biting her neck, his brother standing there, love biting her neck. Uh, he's got this great news from Sicily. It's like, Oh, I guess, I guess it's over. We're calling the whole thing off. And then, you watch like your estranged brother just suddenly <laughs> take down up, on take one up the knee mantle. And, and like I think like you said, like I've been gone three days. Like, what, <laughs> what happened? So I think the real enemy in this film is opera. You know, it, it can really, really flip a dynamic. Um, so I think know, if we establish anything in this podcast, it's that opera is the true evil of the world. <laughs> Inside us all, there are two wolves doing you know what, uh, but they are not going to the opera. Not Your wolves, the, opera. the wolves are never at opera. There is no <laughs> chance of the wolves. The wolf. They're staying home eating bloody steaks. <laughs> bloody steaks and Netflix opera. Get, get out. That is that is my takeaway from this. Um, but then, like we say, yeah, the, the film obviously comes to a very like lovely head. Um, I sort of enjoy that line that rose asks at the end uh because they get married and not married engaged and she's like um do you love him loretta like oh yes ma i love him awful and she goes oh god that's too bad uh it's <laughs> like oh well here we go again mm-hmm. um and then everyone celebrates i like i like that the grandpa brought johnny in and he's like this probably isn't how you imagined it but you are <laughs> part of this family now yeah so, so just sweet. come on have a little yeah. drink and then um you know, and then it's um, sort of closes on the picture of like I'm guessing like the two, uh, you know, the, the tops of the family, like a, a mm-hmm. grandpa and a grandmother, uh, assumedly the, the the OGs of the family who first came to America. But I was thinking as well. I suppose it closes on the, the image of those two, and the film sort of opens on the image of like a dead guy as well. Yeah. So so I guess it's like well, life and death, circle and night life, and day, yeah. and <laughs> it's the circle of life. We've got a, you know. As Rose says, open. we're all gonna die. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we're all gonna die, but let's you know we gotta you just fucking suck on the way out of there. So <laughs> uh, this this you know this is why I, I wait years between movies because I know that my opinion is wrong, but oh, oh boy, <laughs> is it hilarious! Um, but we we certainly that all said and done. Obviously, we come to sort of the end of a. Uh, the end of Moonstruck here and towards the end of our time on this episode. Um, but so for yourself, Mitchell, I guess, you know, I think it's fair to say you are a fan of this movie. What would Big be fan. your final thoughts, your final sort of takeaways from Moonstruck? Um, yeah, I mean, I think my final takeaways are just, I think it's one of, I think, the most romantic movies I've ever seen, but also like extremely hilarious, really different than you expect it to be it has it's like it's very better bittersweet it's very like ineffable it's very it's just really romantic and it has that dreamy magical quality to it while which i think fits well with you know bringing it all back to cage like i think that one of the reasons this is one of my favorite cage performances is because it threads that needle beautifully between the two kind of extremes that he can have where he does have that really maximalist quality, which we get right away when we first, you know, meet him. But he also is like so tender and so of the earth. So like, it's like the pig performance with the vampire's kiss performance, like mixed into one. And I think that 
it's it's a really complete performance that hits all those beats of why Cage is such a dynamic actor. And so I think, especially if people are like you and me, we're on our first viewings of Moonstruck, a little bit disappointed, a little bit confused as to why it has, you know, the outsized canonized reputation that it has, I would highly encourage people to go back and revisit it after a few years and give it another shot after knowing what it is. And I think that you'll grow in appreciation for it. I certainly have seen it a few times now and I love it more each time I watch it. So the real lesson is keep watching the movie until you learn. <laughs> until you until you are learned. Unless it's uh, Avatar, in which case and, just you know the one time you're probably right that it's not good. <laughs> I didn't see wolves in Avatar, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> um but uh with that all said and done, it brings us to the end of this episode of Cage Rage Revisited Two uh mitchell beaupre thank you so much for taking the time to join me and talk all things cage and moonstruck um for the listeners who are listening um where can we find your good self on the interwebs and such else yeah thanks so much for having me it was really a blast love talking cage um i definitely gotta get me on that willem dafoe podcast at some point when, when that, when that oh, kicks out, definitely, definitely get me on there um but yeah if people want to follow me um you can follow me on twitter at it is mitchell um where i have tweeted that i have i did an interview with willem dafoe like last month so oh you're on you're on <laughs> gotta get me on there <laughs> you're on say less say less we'll talk after we'll, we'll talk after <laughs> fantastic uh but like i said that brings us to the end of the episode thank you so much for listening if you have been we will catch you in the next one but until then and as ever keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do thank you take care and goodbye